Father, we thank you for this day of rest and worship and fellowship, fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. Uh, from the youngest to the oldest, Lord, would you help us to be nourished in this time, in Christ's name, amen. So today we are wrapping up the confession, chapter 33 of the Last Judgment. And to set this in its proper context, uh, could someone read for me 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11? So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So, <clears throat> the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11 is just one of the passages. Think of Matthew 24. Uh, think of a number of Old Testament passages which refer to the day of the Lord. The scripture is clear. There is going to come a day of final judgment. There's going to uh, a consummation. This, this universe is not going to go on forever. There is going to be a time of things coming to an end, and that is called the day of judgment. Now, for you young theologians, what is this study of the day of the Lord, this day of judgment, the end of times, what is that called? Eschatology. So it comes from two Greek words, uh, eschaton, which means end, and then logos is usually uh, the word or the study, uh, the theology, it's the study of uh, God, eschatology, it's the study of things that are at the end. Now, again... Once we get talking about eschatology, what's the first thing that pops into your head? The rapture? Second coming? Arguments about is it pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill? <laughs> That's the immediate thing when we start talking about eschatology is, okay, are you pre-mill, are you post-mill, are you ah-mill? Uh, and I think that it's, th those things are, are valid arguments, they're valid discussions, but I think we tend to kind of start at the 50-yard line uh, instead of at the one-yard line 
and, and I think we do better if we start at the one-yard line, which is, what is the purpose of studying the end times according to Scripture? It says that in our passage right there. What is, what is the purpose of considering the day of judgment? Why are we supposed to consider the day of judgment? It affects how you live, and specifically, in our passage it says that we are to be sober-minded, uh, you know, because, because we know that this day of judgment is coming, therefore, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, uh, uh, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I think it's ironic. <laughs> I think it's very ironic that Paul gives us a clear statement for what the study of eschatology is supposed to do for us. It is supposed to encourage, build, and draw a focus on how we live. Now, how many of you would say that our current debate over eschatology, the debates that we have regarding premillennialism, amillennialism, or postmillennialism, are done in the atmosphere of encouragement building up and focusing on Christ-like behavior. Only when we're talking to our camp. Only when we're talking to our camp. <laughs> exactly right. And so I think this is a problem. <laughs> I would I would argue that when we when we distance ourselves from the word and begin to look at topics theology or any other topic that, that, you know, Christian worldview topic, when we look at them apart from the word, we tend to either turn it into some academic exercise, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, or we turn it into, this is my camp, that's your camp, and, and trying to get people all on our side and in agreement with us. And I think that, that's one of the reasons I love where the confession is on this. Uh, because the confession isn't weighing in on is it premillennial, is it amillennial, is it postmillennial. The confession is simply sticking with the words of Scripture and saying what do we draw from the words of Scripture? What can we get? And 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11 is a very... Uh, you know, like I said, it's just one of the passages, but it's a good one for us to, to start with. So what would the first thing that you would get, the first principle that you would get out of 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11 be? What is the first thing that Paul says? It's going to come like a thief in the night, right? So... What Paul is saying is it is coming. There is most surely a day of judgment coming. Don't, don't, don't be, don't question, uh, uh, don't, don't, don't be in the dark about that. 
there is absolutely, without a doubt, a day of judgment coming. Uh, and, and other writers take this issue up where people are saying, listen, you know, nothing's changed. Uh, what do you mean we're living in the end times? And, and Peter says, uh, this is absolutely going to happen. Uh, the fact that it has not yet does not undermine what God has said. And that is that the day of the Lord is coming. There is a day of final judgment uh, that is coming. And so that's the first thing that we get there out of 1 Thessalonians. And so, chapter 33 uh, of the confession, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. There is most certainly a day of final judgment. There's, a, there's most certainly a day coming, and Scripture is clear on that. Now, the question is, why? Why is there a final judgment coming? Is it because we have finally burned up our planet, used up all the resources, and we're going to all pass away in a fiery cataclysm or another ice age? Is it just natural causes? Is it just the way of the world, just the way of the universe that things wind down and eventually this whole thing is going to collapse into a black star? The Bible does not approach it from that standpoint at all. It approaches it from the standpoint of this is God's creation. God has a purpose for this creation. And this creation and all people in it are headed for a judgment. And it's a judgment on ethical grounds. Uh, and you think of uh, the in, in Matthew 24, the, the sheep and the goats. Uh, what is the claim of what, 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 is, what is the uh, approval, the approbation towards the sheep. It's actually a frightening passage. It's a terrifying passage to me. Uh-huh. Right. And so the ones who enter into the joy of their Lord are the ones who cared for the least of these, his brethren. And the ones who depart from him into eternal darkness are the ones who did not care for the least of these, his brethren. Now, here's why that's a terrifying passage for me. What is the basis, according to that passage, of your entering into the joy of the Lord? Your works. And I think we ought to just pause on that just a second. <laughs> because throughout the scripture is clear, we are not justified by works. We are not saved by works. We are not made right with God by our works. We're made right with God by Jesus Christ's works. But there is absolutely an inseparable connection between the one who is given new life and the inhalation and exhalation that that new living creature does. And the inhalation and the exhalation is holiness. It is growing in Christ. It is growing in sanctification. It is living out 
what in reality you are. Now, it's interesting, and, and uh, Chad Van Dixern in his commentary on this chapter makes a, makes a really interesting point. He says, at the final judgment, the righteous are seen at their most righteous. When they protest, I don't belong here. Do you hear what the righteous say in that passage? Lord, when did we do this? When did we visit you in prison? When did we clothe you? Christ approves their works and their response is, no, that's, I, I didn't do the works that you tell me I did. When did, when did I do these things? And Christ says, as much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. The one standing before God, to whom God says, enter into the joy of the Lord, responds with, why? Why, why am I able to enter into the joy of the Lord? I didn't do this. I'm not the righteous person that you say I am. Simultaneously, the one who is cast into everlasting darkness is seen at his most foolish. The, the, the godly are seen at their most wise, recognizing their own inability, recognizing, protesting that they are not righteous. The, the, the ungodly are seen at their most foolish. When did I not do this? Lord, what, what are you talking about? When, when did I not feed you? When did I not clothe you? When did I not visit you in prison? They're saying, you're, you're being unfair to me. I'm a better person than what you're telling me I am. Why, 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 why shouldn't I come in? They are protesting that judgment is unfair because they think they're better than they are. They think they're okay with God. And both of those, when, when, you, when you think of uh, both entering into the joy of the Lord and being cast away from the presence of the Lord, both of the fundamental characteristics of the people, of the person, of you, of me, are on display. When God says, you're a righteous person, the righteous man says, no, I'm not. And when... God says, you are an unrighteous person. The unrighteous person says, no, I'm not. <laughs> and both of them, it's simply revealing uh, what God has been doing in them. It's one of the reasons. That that, that passage really, I, I've, I've heard that passage being uh, used as, uh, you know, some assurance of pardon or, 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 you know, emphasis on grace. It's one of the, it's one of the f- most frightening law passages in the Bible, I think. Uh, when you stand before God, are you ready for God to say, did you visit me in prison? Did you feed me when I was hungry? Did you clothe me when I was naked? Uh, are you ready for that standard that God sets before you? I'm not. I am absolutely not ready for that standard. <laughs> There's no question in my mind that, that I will stand before God and go, yeah, no, I, I, I've failed a million times. Uh, and yet, that's the standard uh, that God sets before us. So the purpose of this judgment, the purpose of this judgment, our confession goes on to say, the purpose or the end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. 
So God's mercy and justice, his two core essential characteristics are on display in the final judgment. And again, I hope, and, and I'm not, you know, I certainly, I have debates over eschatology. I, my, my personal eschatological position is generally a minority position uh, within the, the church uh, in which I serve. And uh, so I do have these conversations <laughs> fairly regularly, and I find it fascinating. And I, I do appreciate the study of the scripture and all of those things. But, but be careful. <laughs> be careful that we are not overemphasizing something that the Scripture does not... the, The emphasis of the last judgment in Scripture is for us to encourage one another, for us to build one another up, for us to live in a godly and sober manner. That's Peter's argument. Uh, what, what manner of persons then should you be in all manners of godliness and holiness, knowing that this creation is going to be consumed in fire? Uh, so, so the purpose of this thing is that you and I are always keeping in our mind, you know, this is not permanent. This is not heaven. This is not, uh, this entire creation is marching towards an end. And that end culminates in absolute righteous judgment and absolute perfect mercy. Uh, Absolute justice and absolute mercy. And so, very much, the final judgment centers upon the work of Christ. Uh, Then the righteous will go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which comes from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So that's just a summation of what's going to happen. That's not controversial. It's just this is what is going to happen at the final judgment. And then the third section, and this is where... You know, I, I, I do think the confession is devotional. I do think the confession is something that is profitable for us to study uh, and for us to regularly be spending time in. And this third section tells us. And so the next time you get into the post-mill, all-mill, pre-mill debate, ask yourself, is this conversation fleshing out section three? Because here's why God wants us to focus on this conversation. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there will be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men, that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. So, the purpose of this, according to the confession, is twofold. One is 
to deter from sin. And the other is to console the godly in difficulty. Uh, when, when there are difficult circumstances in our life, the knowledge that God is taking this thing to an end. <laughs> God is fully in control of this ship. God is both the harbor, Jesus Christ <laughs> is, is in the bow of the boat, and the Holy Spirit is filling the, the wind, filling the sails of the boat. This ship is coming to harbor. And when you and I experience difficulties, as we do, as we do in life, fears, abandonment, crises, all of those things, the purpose of the last judgment passages, the purpose of these things is to console you, to help you to remember that God is running this show. And there are great difficulties that each of us will encounter. Abandonment, betrayal, injustice, all kinds of of really, really wrong things. Things that show us that this creation is not okay. That that our circumstances and our life is not uh, in harmony and peace and perfect with God. There's all kinds of stuff. Uh, I mean, just as basic as childbirth. Uh, in in childbirth, you will have pain. Uh, so so in, in basic as that, but also you know all the other complexities of the betrayals and discouragements in our life. This knowledge that we are living in a creation that is governed by God, that is ruled by God, and that is heading towards a final day, is a comfort. Uh, is to be a comfort to us as well as a deterrence. Uh, don't, don't give up. Uh, God is bringing this. He is in control. It may not look like it, but he is. His word says he is. And, and he is running this thing all the way to his perfect end. So one of the things I wanted to do, today we're closing the confession, next Sunday is our congregational meeting, uh, and then I was going to do a little brief, if we have time, a little brief thing about our itinerary that's coming up in Uganda. And so one of the things I wanted to do today, because pre-mill, all-mill, post-mill is what's on everybody's mind, when we think of uh, the last judgment, I've only got about three minutes, so I am going to try to do the absolute world's fastest uh, <laughs> overview just to give you this really broad sense of what the debate is. Uh, because the question re- the question surrounds Jesus Jesus reign. Um, is Jesus reigning right now, or is Jesus going to reign at some time in the future? And the people who say that Jesus is going to reign at some time in the future tend to see a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And so a lot of the, like you think of Daniel, uh, the, the Daniel passages, the Isaiah, the end of Isaiah, that's supposed to be a bracket. <laughs> uh, uh, sorry, it's a, it's a bracket that had a stroke. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the Old Testament eschatological passages seem to paint a picture of living on earth in a perfect, peaceful, the lion lying down with the lamb, the child playing on the, on the uh, adder's den. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the, the, this, this perfect, harmonious Eden, which clearly we don't have. We're, we're not living in a perfect, harmonious Eden. <laughs> the, the lamb lays down in the lion, not with the lion. Uh, and so this distinction between the Old and New Testament and these, these uh, ideal creation passages, largely people who hold to the Old Testament and the New Testament are talking about two largely different things. Those people will tend to be premillennial. And so in the Reformed community, and, and by Reformed, I'm saying covenantal, uh, they, in, in, in covenant theology and in, in Reformed theology and what I believe is the most biblical uh, expression, there's not a distinction like that between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But rather, the Old Testament flowers into the New Testament. And so these are one book with one flowering into the other. And I'll give you an example of this flowering. Uh, You remember in Hebrews, the, the writer to the Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham did not build a house in the land of promise because he was looking for that city whose builder and maker is God, that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So where do you get that from Genesis? Where do you get any sense from Genesis that Abraham is living in light of an eschatological reality? You don't. (laughs) Abraham, Abram is clearly you know, a wanderer on the earth, and he goes down to Egypt, and he comes up, and he tells a lot, pick where you want, and I'll take the other half, and all that sort of thing, and he ends up being buried in Mamre, uh, or the, the cave of uh, Machpelah, I think it is, whatever, in, in, in uh, Hebron. Uh, but you don't get that Hebrews sense from Genesis, do you? You don't get the sense in Genesis that Abram is intentionally not settling down because he knows that the city that God has promised him is the heavenly city. But the writer of the Hebrews says he did. And so the New Testament feeds back into the Old Testament. And here's... Uh, I'm running long, but here's... If, if you're ever interested, what is the difference between a Reformed Baptist and a Presbyterian? All right? Why, why, and it's not just baptism. 
uh, it, it's not just one believes in believer's baptism and the other believes in covenant baptism. There's a fundamental difference between Reformed Baptists and, by Presbyterians, I'm including Dutch Reformed, etc., etc., but, but the more classical covenantal theologians. The difference is, for a Baptist, for a Reformed Baptist, and this is uh, someone, and people that I respect, D.A. Carson uh, is, is a solid, solid man. Uh, John Piper, uh, the, these are solid, solid men. But for the Baptist, the interpretive flow must go only in one direction. The Old Testament helps us to understand the New. For the covenant theologian, the New Testament interprets the Old. And so when we encounter Abram in Genesis, we should understand Abram in light of Hebrews. The Reformed Baptists will say, no, we shouldn't. When we get to Hebrews, then we can understand how Abram is an example of it, but Abram had no idea. Abram did not have a clue what he was doing in terms of the eschatological, etc. He knew he was being righteous and, and following after God. So the, the basic difference between Reformed Baptist and, and Covenant theologians is that for Covenant theology... This is a constant circle that we're doing. The Old Testament helping us to understand, or the New Testament helping us understand the Old. And I'll just give you a very quick example. You'll find it in the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. We're talking about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a picture of God dwelling with man, right? That's what the tabernacle is. It is God's house. It's the place where God dwells with man. So, what's the purpose, where, where should we go to fully understand the tabernacle? We should go to the New Testament. And we should specifically go to, which we will be doing, Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. For the old things are passed away and every tear wiped away. The new dwelling place of God with man. And that's what the angel proclaims. God's dwelling is now with man. The new dwelling place of God with man should inform how we understand the tabernacle. It should help us to get a picture of what the tabernacle is all about. So the, the, the circle should go both directions for the covenant theologian. Now, I'm five minutes over, but that's why pre-mill tends to not be in uh, covenant theology or, or, or Presbyterians tend to not be pre-mill because these Old Testament passages lead into the New Testament. The New Testament passages inform the Old, and the culmination of all of it is Jesus Christ. And so when the culmination of all of it is Jesus Christ, then the answer to the question, is Jesus reigning right now, is absolutely Jesus is reigning right now. He is absolutely, and the New Testament is pretty clear on that. Uh, He's seated at God's right hand. Uh, uh, God will continue to exalt him. Uh, Every every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess on heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is reigning right now. And so every, between all-mill and post-mill,
we all agree that Jesus reigns. And there's a lot of misunderstanding between the two. Especially Amils tend to misunderstand postmills. Uh, they think that we're saying that the world is going to be perfect and uh, that you're going to see suddenly Northern Virginia, Sterling, 100% Christian or, or progressively, whatever. That, that Sterling is going to be 100% Christian. This is going to be a godly nation. Every single person in this nation is going to be following after Jesus Christ and committed to, to Jesus Christ. And that's just not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that at the end there will be wheat and tares. There will be sheep and goats. Uh, that the terrors grow up with the wheat and all of that sort of thing. So they say, you post-millennialists are crazy. Uh, well, that's because they didn't bother reading uh, any good post-millennialists. And if you want to read a good, argue, a good uh, presentation of post-millennialism, Marcellus Kick, uh, An Eschatology of Victory, uh, is, is a treatment of both uh, Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 20, and that's what convinced me. Uh, that, that exegetically, uh, this is a more accurate position. And the question is, does the reign of Jesus expand until the water, uh, the, the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, or is it, is it completely irrelevant? Should we, should we not expect to see anything at all, uh, in terms of the impact of the gospel on society? So, my amillennial brothers, uh, and, and I said, I'm in, I'm in a minority position uh, uh, in, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Most of my brothers are not post-millennial. I am. But most of my brothers will call themselves optimistic amill. To which I respond, nonsense. That's a cop-out. <laughs> you can't be optimistic amill and say you're not post-mill, because you're misdefining what post-mill is. Uh, you're, you're putting a label on me that I do not accept, that does not come from the Puritans, that does not come from any classical post-millennialist within the Reformed community, and certainly does not come from Marcellus Kick. Uh, you're, you're putting a label on me that is a label that is ignorant, and I have no patience for ignorance. Uh, ignorance, you can be educated. And you need to spend some time in some books, and you need to read them, and you will see that optimistic mill and post-mill are very much in the, in the same group together. Um, so, there is that. That's the purpose. So, so, again, I want to circle back to where the confession starts and ends, which is the purpose of discussing these things, the purpose of thinking on these things, is we are to encourage one another, we are to build one another up, And we are to pursue holiness knowing that this creation has an end. It has a purpose. There's something that God is driving this thing towards. Your life, the life of every man, woman, boy, and girl in northern Virginia, all across the world, God is in control, and he's taking this to a final day. And that final day is going to be that day in which his mercy is most gloriously displayed as well as his justice. So with that, let's uh, close with prayer, and then we'll go into our time of fellowship. Father, we do...
pray that you would help us as we consider these mysterious passages, these uh, statements clearly made in your word that this world will disappear, that Jesus Christ will come like a thief in the night. All of these mysterious passages that we love to get so wrapped up in are given to us for a clear purpose, and that is that we may live godly and sober lives before you, knowing uh, that you are bringing all things to their perfect end. In Christ's name, amen.